Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time it is where you are at. This is Plot Twist, Please. I'm Shamaya. It's like papaya, except it's not. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and also check out our other social media accounts. And don't forget to donate to Harriet's Daughters here in Chicago and check out the links below. Thanks! Welcome to the When Wellness is a Privilege panel. Today I have with me Tamara, Lena, Rodrigo, and Kayla. Since it's the end of Minority Mental Health Month, I thought I'd bring a magnifying glass onto the issues of minorities in America and BIPOC. And I thought it'd be really interesting to talk about the intersection between education, the workspace, um, family culture, and a whole lot of other areas of life that contribute to the mental well-being of minorities. So we're kind of going to talk about all that today. It's a lot to cover, but I hope that you'll get something out of it and learn something and have steps that you can move forward with. Hi, everyone. Hello, hello. So good to see you all. I'm so glad that you're here. And thank you again for joining me on this episode. I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. So uh, the first question that I have for the panel is, how have you experienced racism on a personal level in education? I'll go first. I, it, I mean, it's been quite some time since I was in high school, but I remember I had my heart set on going to Boston University. Um, my parents will tell you that it's because I, in, I liked the group of new kids on the block and they're from the Boston area and they, that's what they'll say, but it, that's not the truth of it. But I remember saying, this is where I wanna go. And I, I went to my high school counselor at the time and was having this conversation with her about where I wanted to go. And she was like, mm, honey, I don't know if you can. And she kept using words like that, honey and sweetie. And it was clear that she'd never looked at my grades, you know, but she just kind of, and we didn't have a relationship, but she just kind of looked at me and made an assumption about what I could and could not do. Uh, went on to actually go to Boston University, uh, getting in and, and going in there and then coming back and teaching at the same high school. Um, you know, where she was now the colleague and it took everything in me to resist that urge to be like, I told you, look at me, I'm that person that you, you didn't think could and, and, and that, you know, and I did. So that's, that's one clear example that definitely stands out, um, years later. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, does anyone else have something they want to share? Um, so I, I resonate a lot with what you say, Tamara, um, a lot of, um, so just to give a little bit of context, I am a graduate student in, in, in physics. I, I, I'm getting my PhD at Harvard University. And a lot of the time, like when I was in the process of applying, uh, people kept telling me like, that's a bit of a reach. You shouldn't do it. Um, I, don't, 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 don't aim too high because then uh, if you don't get there, the fall is going to hurt me, you know? And um, this is this is rhetoric that goes on to a lot of minority people, and especially um, the the groups that I work with is minority uh, uh, people, uh, so, sorry, women of color, and that the fact that they keep being being told that actually uh, we found that prevents a lot of women coming into into STEM fields, um, 
so I resonate a lot with that. Um, and um, yeah. What about in your workplace? Have you experienced racism there? Um, that, I mean, I know I was going to say this when you asked about education too, is that um, there were maybe moments where there was a really heightened or just like um, exceptionally clear moment of um, experiencing racism in, in any setting, but particularly in work and education where it was just like um, absolutely like explicit and baseline. I think that there were, were a lot of microaggressions that I've experienced a lot um, going to high school and middle school and like throughout my life um, that I didn't necessarily process or intake as racism. Um, and I think that a lot of what happened in college was me processing my life almost over again and um, seeing it through that lens and understanding that that was just like something that was constantly at play or like embedded in the structures that I was participating in. And I think that um, like when we look at what's happening around us now, it's a lot of, it's a massive reckoning of the fact that, um, you know, it's pervasive and it's all of the time and whether it's an egregious act of racism or it's, um, you know, in my case, I find that it, a lot of the times it's just like assumptions about my identity or, or my experiences or uh, where I come from. Like a lot of the time, you know, I, it went, like, I remember when I was in high school and I would get in an argument with my dad, the assumption would be like, well, your dad is foreign and therefore he's like sexist and doesn't believe whatever, whatever. And it's like, without me giving any kind of information about my life. Um, and so it's just sort of moments like that where even when they were happening, you know, you grow up and you adapt and you make concessions and you try and level with and get along with your environment. And then you realize like, oh, my experience is very different than my classmates, my white classmates experience or my white coworkers experience. Um, and know that that didn't specifically address like a work experience, but um, yeah, it's just something. No, but that, that definitely resonates with me as well. I feel like, Definitely, I had that synonymous experience in college, looking back at all those instances, was like, whoa, I really was in a situation where I didn't feel like I could say anything, you know? Right. Yeah, I definitely resonate with that as well, being a Black woman who's worked primarily in predominantly, if not all white spaces um, since undergrad and even like going to school at a PWI just microaggressions galore from people who are well-intentioned. I learned a lot about intention versus impact um, in these past years, just seeing people who are, you know, seem to not have malintent, um, but still can say things and do things and hold attitudes that are harmful, whether that's, you know, seeing me work with young children and, you know, going to that <laughs> that place of seeing me as like a mom a caregiver which is what I'm not um it's definitely something where like I can't always point to here's that space where somebody did something so over and so horrendous but like the small little moments over and over over years is something I really really resonate with yeah yeah and I, I would have that many times sort of like what um is it Lena? Lena. Lena said, um, a lot of these microaggressions come by, but you don't notice them at the moment. And and that happened to me a lot in, in, in college where people would say things and then I would 
go home and I would suddenly like feel myself thinking over this, over the things that they said. And then little by little understanding that what they said was aggressive or that um, I needed to, to acknowledge that it was, it was racism and then heal from that. Because if you, if you keep on processing them, you keep on thinking, oh, maybe, maybe this is normal. Maybe, you know, people tell these things to each other all the time. And then uh, you understand that it's part of a bigger issue that can harm maybe other people a lot more than you, it can harm you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so upsetting, too, sometimes in those situations to walk away from them. And then when you realize, when you are able to look back mm-hmm. and reflect and realize what really happened and thinking, oh, my gosh, I was complicit in, in some way and being upset with yourself for that. And I even think about times as far as even in the workspace, you know, as far as being an educator, the, the students that I, I was given you know, like, well, you're black, so therefore these are the students and you're going to get the ones who are struggling or you're going to, you know, it was sometimes a bit frustrating. It's like, I, I would like to do something different. I'd like to teach something different. I would like to work on recruiting not just one particular um, group of students. So it, it's interesting how, how um, this affects us in so many areas. So what is rhetoric that can be harmful in spaces where grievances of minorities are being expressed, especially when it's in predominantly white environments? I think that particularly, I can only speak from uh, my experiences in working in um, primarily religious spaces as well as them being predominantly white. And I think that a lot of times that language, while it's meant to be positive, can be, um, you, you know they love you, you know they didn't mean it that way, those sort of um, excusing things and leaning into our relationships with one another, or our relationships with God, like you know their heart and that kind of thing. And it's like, yes I do, but this specific action is what I'm upset with, um, is, or is what needs to be dealt with in this moment. And so that particular language is something I've, I've run into quite a bit and I find it really harmful and not great. Mm. So can I, can I um, kind of ask a follow-up question to that? Sure. So how would you explain that to someone who is, like you said, well-meaning and is using rhetoric that is actually harmful or more exasperating of the situation? Um, this is an area I definitely want to grow because I'm great at just checking out and just being like, okay, well, this isn't, this friendship's not going anywhere. It's <laughs> not a good habit. Um, um, and I try really hard to be willing to be simplistic, even though it's frustrating to me, because to me, these things feel very obvious. Like you would never say that if somebody's family was struggling with something else, you would never say this to, I don't know thinking about a phrase like Black Lives Matter that people still somehow are getting snagged on five, six years into the movement. Um, You know, you would never say this to somebody whose person, family member was dealing with a specific kind of cancer, like asking myself to be willing to be that simplistic, even when it's frustrating. Now, I don't force myself to do that when it's damaging to my own emotional health. If I'm not in a place to do it, I'm just not going to. But in times when I want to commit and want to see a friendship survive or want to see it heal, I have to be willing to do those building blocks and acknowledge 
no one may have told them this before. It feels frustrating to me and feels like you should know this, but if no one's ever told them and they've never had to be challenged, this is where we end up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad that you acknowledge that that isn't your job because it, it isn't our job to be even doing this, you know? Um, but I, and I think that the more people recognize that like us doing this is a gift to you. Like we don't have to kind of like shield the public opinion of you, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, yeah, thank you for addressing that. Uh, other thoughts? I, I, I have a thought, well, they, I think that the one type of language that is very problematic is any type of language that perpetuates stereotypes towards people of color and having to do with their ability to, to cope with situations. Mm. Uh, like particularly I speak from the, from the point of view of, of, of an immigrant, that there's a lot of times that um, in my field, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of professors and a lot of students are actually from other countries. And we all, we, uh, the other day, this, I got told this by a, a supervisor and they told me, well, you know, these times are hard, but we've experienced hard times before. So, you know, we know what to do. We know how to cope with this. And I find that rhetoric very problematic because it's, it, it keeps perpetuating this the idea that as the immigrant, you, you just got to work and you are here for that and, and, and you are here to pursue this American dream and, and that's all that matters. Whereas, but then the people who are back in our countries look up to us for an example of like see, trying to see what's going on, how do we feel? And if we keep being um, desensitized to the issues that um, trouble us here, we're not giving them the full picture or we're not giving them a good example. It also prevents, um, you know, the growth of, of effective mental health in our workplace and in universities particularly because we're supposed to be resilient. We're supposed to like, you know, always cope with all these things and it's just not true. And so having that conversation of like trying to make people understand that immigrants struggle a lot mentally, not just economically and not just socially, um, is very important. Yeah, there's a, a play, the Colored Museum, and there's a scene where two characters are kind of at odds with each other. And, it, you know, as the scene goes on, you realize one, it's a, a black, two black males, and you realize that one is a younger version of the other, um, of him, a younger version of himself. And he's kind of um, trying to hold on to the culture. And the older one is like throwing away things, throwing away his Jackson 5 records. He's throwing away this. He's throwing away, you know, his Afro pick, whatever it is. And they're, they're really struggling and then the older version says you know being black is too emotionally taxing is what he says and he's like therefore I will only choose to be black on weekends and holidays Mm -hmm. and it's crazy that it's like and you're talking about as you're talking about mental health that really that that is kind of an example of that struggle that we are going through and it's like the fact that we have to operate in both spaces on a regular basis it's it is draining it is absolutely draining yeah, I was I was looking for an infographic and I gave up trying to find it, but there was something floating around Instagram that was um, kind of like delineating racial gaslighting, um, which is what I thought about when you, uh, and when Rodrigo was talking as well, because I think that on some level, like you can certainly, and, I, and my dad is an immigrant from, um, both of my parents immigrated from Egypt, um, 
and talking to him about racism is fascinating because um, he knows it's there and his coping mechanism is to not give it life by naming it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I agree. I think that like you have to, I think that, you know, you can go on and live a long life of internalizing it or navigating it or kind of like trying to not, um, um, acknowledge something that, that you can't change. And I understand that, that there's some degree of pain in that, but I found, um, that the, the more explicit I get about naming the things that are happening, um, the better I feel because I'm able to talk about it. But that does also come with, um, yeah, a certain degree of like policing of language and tone and how that makes other people feel. I think right now we're living in a moment where people are very eager to learn. Um, and so if you um, start to talk about your experience, I think people will be more ready to listen. But I think it's very common for people when you express that you're having a certain experience and then you're also expressing that from the perspective of someone who um, may, probably feels less liberty to speak in, up in these spaces and feels less liberty to take up space with, with your experience in general, you're likely to be met with, like somebody said earlier, people's intentions. I think it was Kayla where um, people have good intentions and they want to be received for their intentions. And so they're like, it's not real. And that might, and I think that, um, I think that another thing that Kayla said is that you really do have to kind of pick and choose and ration your energy to like, or no, it was you, Shemaya. Anyway, somebody said it where it made me think about the fact that you really kind of have to be selective about who you're going to allocate that energy to. And you're like, who do I believe has the earnest desire to like learn and understand how they participate in this if I'm going to explain it to them? Because a lot of times people haven't explained, like, I, I mean, I've, I've, there's a lot that we don't get explained to us, you know, <laughs> that, that just like is known. And I think that from like, and that ranges from being an immigrant to being black to being the child of an immigrant to being a black woman to being a queer black woman you know what i mean like those are all um different experiences that you where you just like the more um layers of identity that you have the more you're just going to understand without someone telling you and i think that the process of like being able to explain um, certain experiences to someone who like not only doesn't understand but might even reject that experience is incredibly exhausting um, and is like a choice to make um, yeah sparingly is like how, how how much of a toll is it going to take on me to try and have my lived experience be like acknowledged and accepted which is just like a basic thing that everyone should have um, but yeah absolutely um so this is a question directed at Rodrigo. Um, what, or rather, how has information that has come out about ICE in recent years um, impacted you and your mental health um, and the conversations that you have? Yeah, so I, I first of all, I'll, I'll like kind of like um, clarify that I had a, a, a student visa for some years when I was in, in, in high school and then my first two years of college. And then since then I've been able to, to get my residentship card and I've had it for five years now. Um, so while the, 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 the recent issues from ICE that aroused uh, a, against international students didn't affect me directly, I do still feel a lot for 
the international student struggle. And, and we must remember that ICE was not born last, in the last three weeks where these rulings came out. It's been around since, um, you know, since Trump took office and the adversarial rhetoric uh, towards immigrants, um, particularly coming from South America, has been there even before that administration came into place. Um, now, um, we must remember that ICE also has encased children and, and banned Muslims and even treated immigrant caravans as, as, as bands or gangs of, of delinquents instead of the, uh, the humanitarian crisis that it is, um, as to how it has affected my, my, uh, my conversations. Well, um, when, the, um, when this rhetoric came out from ICE three weeks ago uh, or two weeks ago, uh, I started hearing a lot about from about this from my from my from my friends and from people in in my university and thankfully we managed to um put put some testimonials together and i was actually helping the the the, the legal team from from harvard and mit that put together this this um lawsuit to for the government and um they sued uh the trump administration and a few days later the order was dissented um, which was a great win for immigration rights uh, as, as it comes from, from um, particular international students. However, uh, the, we must acknowledge the bigger reality here that um, this effort to, to descend that law was born out of a financial necessity from many, many universities to ensure that the lungs of the university remain in this country in a lawful way. Um, graduate students are what drives research and what drives um, education at universities. So them being faced with losing up to 30% of their population made for a really good way for them to step up to the plate, but it's not enough, right? They have not, uh, like, I can speak only for Harvard, but like Harvard has not, <laughs> acknowledge the racism that has aroused from, from ICE in the last four years and the tremendous ad, a, a adversity towards Chinese students who are now being stopped at customs because saying that you're a scientist is enough for somebody to suspect that you're a spy. Mm. And, and, and so um, the conversations around this have, have really flourished in the last few years because um, it's just an example of, of systemic racism and, and, and turning a blind eye for a problem, a problem that um, at first glance doesn't have a lot of effect in academia, but as we've seen now, um, eventually it will do. You know? And eventually the Trump administration has, has been clear in, in, in wanting to, to hurt immigrants no matter how they came into this country or, or, or just to other them in some way for their own benefit. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, I, I would say that the, the, the conversations have really deepened and I'm really happy about that. Uh, at the end of the day, we, um, we have to understand that immigrants are people just like anybody else and that we 
we really cannot have it such that immigrants' livelihood is in a blink of an eye just put into question and that your stay here becomes a liability all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I, it's wild because I can't, I can't imagine being in a position where my entire life could be uprooted potentially tomorrow. I, just, I can't imagine being in that situation. Um, so yeah, my heart definitely goes out to everyone who's being affected by this. Um, so this is to everyone. What is the approach to mental health within your culture? Historically, I think it's been suck it up, <laughs> you know? um, but I'm glad to see that that's, that's changing, um, that there's more awareness now, but I, I think especially for our men, um, there's definitely, you know, you're being soft, man up, you know, so um, yeah, and just, just thinking about them not wanting to appear weak, right? And I'm, I'm just grateful that there, that there are more resources now, but I think historically that's kind of been the way that we've looked at uh, mental health within the community. I definitely see that in the Black community. I can't speak to, I mean, of course, I can't speak beyond my own experience. Um, I do believe that there is a culture of silence around um, mental illness. Um, a lot of the ideas like that, well, one, there's stigma. There's a huge amount of stigma around um, even therapy, you know, like, which to me is like, I talk about my therapist 24 seven in conversation and just like looking for ins to plug nuggets of wisdom that I've gotten. Like I love um, the process of being in therapy. I think everyone should be in therapy. Um, and that's definitely a, a shift that I have um, undertaken. And it's something that like, you know, I, my family has definitely dealt a lot with um, mental health issues that have gone unspoken or unacknowledged or swept under the rug. And that is, as a lot of people can um, understand is like, that's, um, that only makes things worse um, to not deal with it. So I think that in general, um, I don't, I, I don't, obviously this isn't the case for everyone. I'm sure that like every family is different. And I mean, I know for a fact that every family is different and I'm sure that there, I know that there are spaces and I've encountered spaces in the Swana community where mental health is very much talked about and there are resources available and things like that. Um, but yeah, in my family and in my home, it was definitely kind of an uphill battle to um, not be shy away from using the word, words depre like depressed or anxious or whatever and um, and therefore be able to deal with it kind of like naming racism or naming you know a mental health problem or whatever mm -hmm. able to deal with it. also I wanted to say thank you so much for sharing Rodrigo earlier what you said um, was very well said and it reminded me of something this is a total tangent but it reminded me of something that I had seen where um, someone had said that with people being kidnapped off the street right now and things happening, um, that someone had said, um, immigrants had told you that this was, that this was happening. Like you did, this was already happening. It just wasn't happening to you. And that basically the warning was that 
people were getting snatched up by ice and things like that. And everyone kind of like thought that that was never going to happen to them and that we were untouchable. And now it's happening to us too. Or by us, I just mean like it's happening outside of just that community. But that was where the warnings were that we all should have been aware of. And yeah, you spoke very well to that. So mm. thank you. I think that that has been the theme this summer, you know, of, of the of the injustices that are there all the time. And now because we have the media's attention or, or you know, we can get backed up by some institution that we wouldn't be otherwise backed up by. Right. Um, that these conversations are taking place even beyond just the simple event of the struggle, right? Right. It's, it's, it's a hopeful um, sign, I think. Yeah, it's not new, it's just visible. Yeah. Right. This question is directed at Kayla. So how has getting a degree in psychology impacted how you view trauma, especially as it pertains to Black women or the Black community? For sure. I actually, I have my undergrad now, but I'll be starting my um, my graduate pursuit probably next semester. Awesome. Um, Yes, I definitely see trauma in places now where I, I want to say like where we're not allowed to see it otherwise, where it's just a strong black woman doing what she got to do and we're not allowed to see, oh, this person is in pain and feels that there is no other option than to keep, just to stand up and keep going as though things are normal, which is, um, a resilience that I think is to be praised, but the situation I think ought not be glorified in the way that it is. Um, so yeah, it's allowed me to see it, to recognize it. Um, and I just think that black women especially are affected in it. And like we talked about um, how mental health is per um, not pursued, is perceived in our communities as being weak. I think that affects us um, in a particular way, because it's like, you know, your mom handled worse, your grandma faced worse, what is wrong with you? Um, and it's that level of gaslighting that goes on oftentimes without anybody even having to say anything. Sometimes it can happen, um, can be internalized to where we just believe that we don't have room to break down. We don't have room to say, I need help to say, I need to be seeing a therapist. Um, because what we've seen is women who are strong and we glorify that as if it's not trauma when it is. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's such a good point because you see, even in biopics about some of our black heroes, there's this painted picture of, look at how amazing they are. They never reacted. They never showed weakness. That's how amazing they are. And it's like, okay, this person is amazing because they don't show feelings. Like, right. you know? And yeah, and to our knowledge, they didn't. We don't right. know what, how much that heartbreak, how much that trauma was affecting them behind closed doors, but they knew where the public could see, where history could see, they knew what they had to do. And that's, that's the issue to me. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Directed to Tamara. Uh, so what, what is it like raising children in an anti-black world if you could sum it up in 
less than probably a lifetime of explanation. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I think we have to have hard conversations with our children, right? Um, and in my, my, I was talking to my brother about this and he, he talked about the fact that one of the things for him actually is he started out by naming how how he names his children. Um, his, all of his children, their names have meaning and granted we did too, but his are kind of like, um, they're talking about community. They're talking about cooperative economics. Those are the kinds of names that he gave to his children. And, um, you know, I think about even with us, as far as being in the, in the classroom, as far as Kingsway our School, we are called the Kingsway Royals. And that was intentional because we wanted to see the children to see themselves as more than what society says they are um, to we want our children to appreciate not only um, their humanity we want them to appreciate their history so we're teaching them about their status in the world we're, we're studying history we're studying culture so that they can affirm who they are and that's the one sense in the classroom but then I also have to do that at, at home um, and making sure that we are teaching things more than slavery because we don't want, that's not where our history started and um, we want our children to not feel as though that they're victims. Um, and so we have to be intentional in the way that we, we do things. I remember we actually had a theme at school where we were superheroes. Uh, the, the, every year we have a theme and that one year the theme was about superheroes and even asking the children to talk about what superheroes do they see that look like them. And Black Panther was coming out that year and that's the reason why we chose that theme. And that's like the one that they could remember. They like Black Panther, some might've mentioned Storm, but really they didn't know too many. And so we had to even go in and talk about even that uh, Maya Angelou, for example, is, you know, we can see her as a superhero. The fact that she used her words and trying to be able to kind of look at the world a little bit differently. Um, we, uh, you know, you got to think about the the way that whiteness is viewed or white supremacy is not a uniquely American thing. It's not just restricted to the U.S., but if you look across the world and there's... Um, in Japan and in, in India, you know, I'm from Jamaica. In Jamaica, we've got people who are lightening their skin. There's a lot of uh, skin, skin lighteners out there right now. So teaching you to love and respect who you are, um, teaching them about things like the dictionary, right? So if you look at, um, in the dictionary, you look at words and that we actually use this as an example use with our children at Kingsway where the students, we talked about a, a speech by um, Dr. Martin Luther King, and he actually talked about, look in your dictionary, every time you see the word white, it's something pure. When you see something, the word black, it's usually something dark and it's, it's ugly. So trying to, to change those things when you're talking to the children, you know, you look at the way clothing is made, it fits a certain body type, the images that we see, um, band-aids, you know, it's, it's everywhere, flesh-toned band-aids, and okay, who's that flesh tone for? nude stockings you know so trying to change things and you know even talking to the children about representation um i know there's a lot but a big thing is really just showing our children that they have worth praising them for what they what they are doing so that they know that they can and that they don't feel like they're less than others because this other person does something great that's what that person does but look at what you do um and ultimately as we're teaching all of this we don't 
we don't want to raise bitter children, right? Um, so it's it's teaching them, and it, it's so hard because you know with the different age levels, it's one thing to have a conversation now with my college age child, but versus when I did that as a kindergarten, and the conversations that we have to have are just they're so hard. They're so hard sometimes, and feeling frustrated. I've been in tears sometimes about the fact that I have to have conversations that other families, other communities do not have to have with their children. And that is rough. Like going, you know, I remember the other day having my son about a month ago, he rode his bicycle and he's um, now going to be an incoming freshman. Um, riding his bicycle to the grocery store not um not terribly far away and he dropped his wallet and was like okay i gotta go back and really being like terrified in that moment about him having to to go back and, and do that because how someone else might see him but at the same time knowing that you know i can't live from a place of fear and i can't express to him every bit of i don't want him to see all of mommy's anxiety right now um so it, it, it's hard but just most importantly with the, the children is you know teaching them who they are they're different but the same you know you know see, see the humanity in in others we're not just going to categorize one group of people even if others may want to do that to us we're, we're going to stay clear of that it's a lot to process and it, it, it sucks that we don't have the luxury to be unaware you know, um, wherever you go, whatever space you're in, you're always aware of who you are. Like you're aware of your color. I'm, and when I'm in that classroom, I'm that one. When I go to the restaurant, I'm that one. When I'm in that setting, I'm that one. And it, it's it's a lot to process. And I'm hoping that I'm answering your question. And I'm kind of going around in a bunch of different things, but it's it's not easy. It's not easy raising a child in this and to, to make sure that there isn't that hate and bitterness for others as we're trying to share. This is, this is the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I can't relate to having a child of my own, but I, I teach preschool. And one of the things I notice is that they absorb everything. Um, and, you know, if, if you're frustrated, then they feel it. If, if you have a positive outlook, then they adopt that oftentimes. And it's just, I can imagine doing that now at, at a time like this um, and trying to raise a balanced child in a world like this. Um, this question is going to be directed at Lena. So what has it been like within your community dealing with things that are happening right now with, you know, with COVID and all the things that are kind of circulating in the atmosphere? Um, well, my community now is Chicago, so that's what I'm most in tune with. The term Middle East is very Eurocentric, and so I think that people are starting to move away from that and call it Southwest Asia and North Africa um, to be more geographically specific. Um, so, at the same time, like Middle East is a term that is understood by the people who live there. And so um, that's something that like, I don't think it's like problematic to say Middle East. Um, but I would say that North Africa is, I mean, that Egypt is, is, North Af is North Africa and generally referred to as specifically North Africa. Um, Egypt got hit pretty hard and as we know like different countries have different levels of access to resources and um, abilities to recuperate from these things and obviously the economy in Egypt is very different so things like that are impacted um, 
you know, it doesn't, it doesn't look the same as it does here. Um, um, but I'm more aware of the impacts that it has had in Chicago, just from paying so much attention to what's happening here. This is for everyone. Do you think that your parents went about mental health in the same way you did or currently do? And what are the differences, do you think? Um, it's, a, it's a yes and no answer for me. Um, so I immigrated here with my parents when I was 16. And my, my, I think my grandparents were not very much into mental health and, and, but, but from, you know, and this arose from their cultural uh, context and the time that they were, um, in the time in which they were situated. Uh, but my mom actually is, is, has been very, like, very forward to challenging this notion that mental health is not, not that important uh, with my grandparents. So in a sense, my, my, my mother from a young age uh, educated us in like taking therapy seriously. And so I think from a, from a very early point, um, she had us going to, 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 to some kind of counseling when we were little even, and then uh, more so when I was a teenager. Um, so it was very interesting uh, to do that. Now, when I came to the US, I completely forgot about that. Like that, that was just wiped out of my mind, you know, like, I mean, I had so many things to do and so many things to learn that uh, it wasn't there. Um, and now that uh, my, now, now I, I go to therapy once every other week and, and I go to group therapies too because those, those I found to be tremendously useful. Um, and in that, in that sense, my mom is like, oh, how could you go with like other people? And she doesn't feel very, very comfortable with that. Um, so, but, but in a way, I think my, my mom was the one who really challenged that notion in my family of like, we need to take this seriously and we can um, uh, let this pass. Um, especially after um, several members of my family went through um, being diagnosed with, with um, addiction to, uh, I think, alcoholism. And that we started to notice that there were certain patterns that in the family were not okay. Uh, that there was certain level of neurosis that we needed to somehow address and, and stop turning a blind eye to. Um, so it's, it's it, but you know, for my dad, um, no, <laughs> he does not go to, he does not talk about mental health or, or anything like that. And uh, slowly has turned from um, just go to church and like talk to God or, 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 um, or talk to the, to the church community, which is very important to also, you should like go and receive um, um, healthcare advice from a professional. I, I feel like I'm in that place now where it's like, look, can I go and talk to someone? I don't, I can't say that there's necessarily something that I can identify, but, and, um, Ooh, uh, sexually um, abused when I was a child and, you know, moving on and being like, okay, I've forgiven. That's the church part, right? But then you kind of think now, like in the back of your head, like, okay, what is there that I haven't necessarily dealt with and addressed and wanting to actually kind of go to, and, and so I'm grateful for this because now I'm really thinking about it, like really tomorrow you should go and um, 
and, and speak with someone. And I think that's something that, uh, and, and especially in circumstances like what happened with me, that that's something that's definite, like a hush hush, we're not gonna even talk about that. So, um, and it would have been, you know, in the past, like your private shame, but now it's, I, I feel like it's something worth uh, talking about and going further. Things that we're dealing with today or things that came before us, they didn't have a name. Like they didn't have necessarily have a name for some of the things that we now clearly are like, okay, here's what it is and here's medication for that or treatment for that. So that's something to even think about in thinking about those who are before us. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for sharing. What role do we think religion plays within our ethnic community when it comes to mental wellness? And I know we touched on this here and there, um, but I'm wondering if anyone has anything specific to add. Actually, like a couple of days ago, I was talking about, I was talking to my grandfather about this. Um, and and I, I was telling him that like, I, you know, right now I have a mental struggle related to COVID-19 and the fact that like the virus was some, has been somewhat or, or somehow politicized. And now the way back to normal, like seems very, very far away. And it seems to be getting even farther away every day. And um, frankly, his response was was like, like took me for a shock. He told me just have faith. And and I gotta tell you, like in times like this, I don't have a lot of faith to hold on to, uh, especially right now. And and I asked him what he meant, and um, and he went on and uh, upon reflection, kind of, I, I realized that um, for for us, as I can I can speak for the Mexican community, is that. Um, how religion came about was um, an amalgamation of the pre-Hispanic culture and the Spanish cultures. And uh, in this sense, um, I think I've realized that like religion is not a way to diverge guilt or anxiety, but a well from which to derive strength. And so um, faith is fueled by hope, right? And, and, and hope, um, th and, and hope that you know, this event will derive some truths and will derive um, some meaning. And um, he actually shared with me a, a quote from, from, from the uh, book of the Colossians by St. Paul, or the letter to the Colossians. And I can read it to you if you want to. Oh, um, sure, if you want, yeah. Yeah, so I wrote it down. It says like, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I will fill up my flesh I will fill in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so what really got me thinking about this quote is that St. Paul is addressing the fact that he is suffering. He is joining in the suffering of others. And I think that this was very, very important. Because as we are in our houses, or we are in isolation, or we are quarantining, it is important to be solidarious with the sufferings of others. Because other people do struggle every day. And now that we can at least experience that, and that we are unfazed by many distractions that the world presents to us, I think it's very important to come into questioning and to really acknowledge that, at least in my experience, I've acknowledged that like, I don't suffer as much as other people. Um, so this suffering in a way is, is what harms a lot of, um, in, in my case, a lot of immigrants uh, in every day. Thankfully I have my residentship, but 
people who are in visas, they face this all the time. And so um, in, actu in actuality, he went on to say something else. And Paul said in that same letter, I will let her rejoice also in the happiness that will come about from this event. I'm just paraphrasing that. And I think that that's very, very interesting that like we should take the suffering of others as our own. So when it comes down to, to why, why should, should we say Black Lives Matter? Why should we refuse ICE? Why should we refuse Trumpism? Is because the struggle of other people will inevitably harm everybody. You know, racism affects black, brown, and white communities. It may take longer to affect some of them, or it may be an indirect effect, but it nonetheless is harmful and is violent. So um, just, just going back to, to that conversation with my, with my, um, my grandfather, I think he, he, he like hit it spot on, even though he like wasn't meaning to, uh, or, or maybe he's just so wise I didn't understand it at first. Um, but yeah, I think thinking like this, being hopeful, having faith and being solidarious really keeps me afloat. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say that um, I grew up Muslim and my dad, um, my parents would invoke like just God or like the idea, the, if I were scared to go downstairs by myself in the dark, you'd say God is bigger than that. Or they would say things along the lines of, you know, when you're struggling, it's God trying to bring you closer to him. And the older I got, the more jaded I got about that because I started to ask questions where that answer wasn't adequate. And I was like, I need to like really think about this and really anchor it in the, in the world that, that's going on right now and my actual frustrations. And then increasingly, the more I started to think about the world, the more those answers became comforting to me again. And when I think about um, the revolution that's going on right now and I think about what's happening around us, it is so important for me personally. I mean, I think radical love and radical vulnerability is getting talked about a lot right now um, in conjunction with, um, you know, dismantling certain systems of oppression and having this underlying optimism. And I remember um, one, there's an interview with James Baldwin when, where someone asked him if he was an optimist. And he said, I have no choice because if I'm not optimistic, I have nothing to fight for. And I think that the, it's similar when you talk about faith and just the concept of having faith that, um, that there will be a yield for your efforts when there's no guarantee. And I know that that can sound very simplistic and diminutive, but I think that there's so many principles in um, the faith that I grew up with and in the religion, because I grew up Muslim, but I went to a Catholic school and I was around a lot of Jewish families and stuff. And so I think that there are general principles just around, and um, yeah, there are general principles around everything that um, can really be a fuel for living life and for changing the world. And I think that what Rodrigo said about solidarity is so true. And I think ignoring the fact that our struggles are tied um, is um, what has brought us here now and, and what has brought us to a point where now everyone is experiencing the brutality that everyone has always said ex existed, but we didn't give it space and we didn't take it seriously. And now we're experiencing it, experiencing it on a much more like broader scale and it's almost like that's what it took for it to come to people's awareness and for people to be like this is real like now I'm seeing it now my friends are getting brutalized by the police and now I in similar with COVID like 
we don't take it seriously, we don't wear our masks and someone we know gets COVID. And then suddenly it's like, oh my gosh, it's a pandemic, you know? Um, and I think that anchoring in that solidarity is really important. And another thing that I was thinking about, and this is the last thing, was how generally like we talk about people who come and they it, it, like different prophets or whatever it would be called in different religions, but who come and they deliver a message and people either listen to them or they crucify them. And, um, and I just, it, this is totally just me, like in my imagination and things like that. But I was just like, dang, that's kind of been the case with liberation, like over and over and over again, as people try and liberate people, they get ignored, they get crucified, they get assassinated. Um, and you know, I think that what's, I keep connecting everything to the movement right now because I think it's so powerful and so important and it affects our mental health, it affects our faith, it affects our understanding of like what's going on, especially the fact that it's happening during the pandemic. And I think that um, the fact that this is so widespread and that we don't have a one MLK or one Malcolm X that you can just behead the whole movement, but that it's, that it's so many people and it's so massive. Um, it feels spiritual almost. And the fact that it's so anchored in love and in inclusivity and in, you know, making sure that everyone has what they need. Um, uh, that yeah, there is, it just did, it, it does remind me of a lot of the tenets of religion and faith that I grew up in. I've loved everything you guys have shared. I think, um, our religious lives in, especially where mental health can, is concerned can be a double-edged sword. It can be used, um, to, to gaslight, to tell you that everything's going to be fine, so don't address it. It can be used that way, but it can also be used in these really positive ways we're bringing up to comfort and to challenge us and to move us to action. It's meant to be both. Um, Rodrigo, I love that you read from Colossians. That's one of my favorite books of scripture because it does both. Like it, it spends a long time just telling you who God is and then goes into it. And now because of this, this is who we are. This is what we do for one another. Um, and it's meant to be both at, at its best. Um, our religious practice, whatever it looks like, is meant to draw us into comfort in our pains, but also challenge us to move in these, in these moments when we need to move. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, those are such great comments. I come, like, I, I think that there's, a, there's a, 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 something that my therapist told me a long time ago. Um, he told me, um, you know, mental health is about acknowledging your your feelings and 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 letting them go through you, but also is about not letting them to take over you. So, I think that religion for me works in that sense that uh, oftentimes if um, I, I think about all these writings and about what is going on and I'm able to acknowledge a lot of feelings that are going through and then kind of like let them go and, and not let them take over me. Because as you said, like it's, um, it's really what the, the acknowledgement of these feelings right now is what actually lets us move forward. So if we do not let take, take those feelings take over, we will not be paralyzed and we will be able to take the next step. And I think that that's very important to, to kind of develop that as, as it goes with mental health as well. Yeah, one thing I wanted to add too to what Kayla said was that when you said it's supposed to inspire us to action, and I feel like 
um, that transition from when I started to feel like my concerns were being dismissed by this really broad answer. Um, what helped combat that and what helped me come back to that was anchoring it in the real world and being in the real world and seeing what was happening and then having these principles um, apply, like applying them as a framework rather than as a whole like universe that I was existing in that was separate from the the people in the community that I could actually impact and affect uh, and like not having those things be separate and yeah Rodrigo too to your point of just like I've heard that too that that feelings are some like a, a just a tunnel that you have to go through like you just you have to just be in them and even if it feels like there's not another end to the tunnel like there is and you need to proceed yeah that's amazing thank you those are great I like the analogy. <laughs> So what are your thoughts on the criminal criminalization of BIPOC as it pertains to mental health? So my brother um, struggled with his mental health. He passed away four years ago yesterday. Um, and he was in his late 20s when he passed away. And he had been for a few years having up and ups and downs with um, mental health and uh, law enforcement was called frequently mm -hmm. um, on a regular basis and when they intervened he was brutalized he was they were really aggressive and um, it was not it was never helpful and if anything it actually exacerbated um, because when you're in that fragile or that vulnerable of a state and then you're adding that trauma to it um, you know of course, it's just not helpful. And even within mental health institutions, um, there was this idea that like, I just need to play the role, I just need to behave, I just need to follow the rules and like avoid even in his state um, where he was struggling with mental illness, that he felt like he needed to just avoid punitive measures that they would take if he had an outbreak or if something had happened, which obviously wasn't in his control. Um, and I think that whether or not you have a pre-existing mental illness, um, understanding that you are that vulnerable to that level of brutality at any moment um, is a constant wear on your feelings of safety, on the feeling. And we're talking about people being able to open up and face their vulnerability and do the things that they need to do to seek help. And especially when you're talking about men, which I think Tamara had mentioned earlier, um, that is, there is no safety to, to feel um, that I can let my guard down and that I can actually just decompress because every time I leave the house, I'm faced with the possibility that, um, that, 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 that there's a constant lack of safety by the very force that's supposed to keep us safe. Um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, this applies to everyone. It's not just men who are getting brutalized by the police um but we definitely see that a lot as we yeah um as we all are watching unfold right now but i definitely think that in regards to mental health and mental awareness there's like a lot of heavy policing and a lot of brute force that is used and a general lack of you know restorative measures that are taken I appreciate that you shared about your brother's experiences because I think that's one of the things that I think about sometimes is that um, I'm not to blame the person, um, but the person in power. 
um, in situations like these because I feel, you know, the police, they don't have the necessary training to deal with people in, uh, with uh, mental health issues and they just don't have, it's frustrating because I, I see it not only in when we look at policing, but even within the classroom, right? You know, you think back to um, your earlier days and it's, you know, what teachers say and like, oh, this child is so disrespectful. This child is this, he's that, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, they don't follow the rules. We need to suspend them. And you talked about being punitive, right? And so it's, it's no, it's, it's look deeper. It's, it's a case by case situation. It's, there's got to be empathy. So I feel like we're so focused our system is so focused on power and having power over people and possessing um and it's, it's yeah it, you you can't blame the person having the episode you got to blame the person responding in a lot of these uh these situations that that we we're experiencing now yeah absolutely so this is a question that's directed toward uh kayla and tamara because you are both educators um, and I don't know what specific demographics you work with, but from your experience, what factors do you see playing a part in the mental health struggles of youth and specifically students? I found, especially in this um, position that I've been in, obviously not all of my kids are rich and privileged in that way, in a class um, kind of way, um, but being that the majority of my students right now are white, I'm able to see it almost from the opposite vantage point. Um, able to see um, the amount of patience they receive when they do, just like you were talking about, the amount of patience and chances they receive when they act up. Not just with me, because I try to call it extremely fair. Um, but just in stories I hear from all day at school, how they've acted up all day and haven't gotten in trouble, I know that that was not the case for me when I was growing up. Um, and I can see that, or I can see um, the way adults in their lives recognize when they're exhibiting anxious behavior rather than disruptive specifically. Um, notice, like, you know, as parents talk with me when we're going on a trip or what have you, like, hey, I think she's struggling with some anxiety. Would you be willing to check on her in this? And, and in that, just so much understanding and so much room um, to be children in that way. And um, it's on the one hand, it's nice to see because every child deserves that. But on the other hand, it does sting to know that like, I didn't have that as a kid um, coming up in a white school. I didn't have that room to, to be a kid and make those kinds of mistakes and act up when I wasn't feeling good inside of myself. I didn't have that. And, you know, students like me today don't have that. So I get to, I see it, but from the other, the other side. Mm. And then you think about what these children are facing, right? Because they are dealing with the trauma that comes from being a part of a, a historically oppressed group and the violence that some of the children see in their communities. Um, they don't have a uh, stable home life. Uh, almost everything honestly that we can think of negative is affecting some of the children who are walking in our classroom um the, the poverty the violence that are causing emotional distress and you think about the fact that so many of them 
you know, my brother teaches in the city of Chicago and dealing with children who are homeless or on their way to, to homelessness. They're the parents who you're trying to, especially with everything with COVID and everyone having to go to the, the virtual space for classes and their teachers are trying to reach out to parents and parents are responding like, look, I've got other issues right now. Talking to me about my child's homework, that doesn't rank as high as some of the other things that we're dealing with. Um, you know, they're dealing with things like no food, no parents at home or drugs. They're dealing with abuse. And you got to think about in the classroom, how do you teach that child? Uh, it, it's not that they can't learn, but there are a lot of non-academic uh, factors that are there. And these children, in a lot of these communities, they're suffering from PTSD. They don't even know, some of them don't even know that they're traumatized, right? Um, and the school tends to be that safe place for, for a lot of children. And we're finding that out more and more now with COVID. Everyone's like, the schools need to open up because of this. We need a safe space. We need, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this is the, this is the role of the school. Um, and the need for a significant amount of social workers now in schools, it's so important. Um, because there's so much that's making its way into these children's uh, uh, mental uh, development. And I feel like schools are, to some extent, complicit because uh, in a lot of the crimes, because of the socialization in the school systems. Um, you know, teachers often think that they're the most significant person in that student's life, but the truth is, it's their peers. You know, if you're a student, you're asking questions in the classroom where a student doesn't get something before going to a teacher, a lot of times that student is going to, to appear to, to find out an answer. And so it's the same thing with a lot of their behaviors that they're learning. They're learning from their peers. You're spending a, a significant amount of time in that uh, education space. And so teachers aren't even aware of a lot of what students are doing. You know, students are being bullied and teachers, I mean, they're sly. <laughs> they can be um, pretty crafty with it and, and students, uh, teachers aren't necessarily aware of everything. And you think about, I mean, I could go on and on like with education, like subpar education, um, you know, it's just, and, and then you think about a disproportionate number of students of color, the ones who are being disciplined. So school to prison pipeline, you know, something that, you know, we talk about and just even as we talk about children being traumatized or not knowing that they are when they do recognize that they are they don't want to go to the social worker. They don't want to go to seek help because it's not necessarily the thing to do. It's like, you go and you ask them about something. It's like, no, I'm cool. I'm good. And it's like, no, you, you just, you know, the guy down the street just got shot. You know, there are schools where they come out of school and there is a shooting right in front of the school, but I'm okay. No, you're not, you're, you're not okay. And so needing to have things in place to help those children. And if you think about like Illinois kids and them being on grade level, or like I think about like 40% of Illinois students are even at grade level. That's, that's something they're learning, but the, it's the behaviors that they're learning and not the academic things that we're, we're trying to put forth. And then uh, you think about boys being disengaged in education. Most teachers are, are women. I mean, there, there's just so much that can be discussed when it comes to to, to schools and I think um, in the educational system, and I just think that there needs to be um, just, we need to not be in the educational system, we, not, we need to not be compliant. Um, and that's really what, 
And, and honestly, that's what we're teaching children is a lot of compliance. You know, can you follow the instructions? Can you take this test and so on? And we are not, um, we're not teaching them to be free thinkers. So it, it, there's, again, I, I, I could go on and you think about the people that we have in the classroom. We're big movement right now. We are talking about all the Karens in the community, but the truth is we've got a lot of Karens in the classroom. Mm. Um, and these are the people who are teaching our children. And so, um, yeah, there's, we, we, we have problems, yes, but true education, I feel like, would not lead to some of the issues that we are having right now in our, in, in our community. Um, there's a need for social emotional learning. Um, there's a big need for that. And, you know, think about, there's so much, like you think about what we, we listen to, the attitudes we have, the shows that we watch. I wish a person would, you know what I mean? So it's just really trying to retrain. And there, there's, again, there's just so much that our students are facing outside of the classroom um, that's not benefiting them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Very good point. So um, this is to everyone. What are your thoughts on prisons uh, as, a, as they relate to mental health? And as we know, um, the stats show that particularly BFUC and even more specifically, Black communities are impacted the most by the prison system in America. So in relation to mental health, um, what are your thoughts on that? Um, goodness, I, I, you know, you wonder if we're really in a place to um, to actually have reform mm -hmm. uh, as much as we, we want it. Are we really there? You, you look at other countries and what they're doing. Um, I, I think, Lena, you mentioned before about um, um, like more along the lines of restorative justice, right? And something that's important, but we are not necessarily, our system is, again, going back to that, is so uh, punitive, it's so, vindictive i think there's a move at one point to outlaw books in the library like what you know to me or uh, uh, in the in the in uh, prison libraries and you know it's it's kind of like that mindset of you know you committed a crime you have to suffer this is what we're here for uh you know somebody who uh you know might have there might have been a nonviolent crime, but that same person is in there with the big guy, big guys, and now you've got to learn certain behaviors to actually survive within that system. So you're learning criminality now from the experts. Um, just and you think about what's going on across the nation in Portland, what they're trying to bring to Chicago as far as having these unmarked forces going out and arresting people. It's Lock people up is America's solution and it's not working, but at the same time, I don't see, our, is America really ready to do that? Mm. Other countries are, other countries are doing it, but is America ready to really do that? I was gonna say, I really appreciate hearing from educators about this because I've been listening so much about, to, to a lot about transformative and restorative justice practices. I think Adrienne Marie Brown is an excellent source on um, getting to think about alternatives to systems that are currently in place. But education is such an essential part of that. Um, and especially during those formative years. And I was listening to this video where she was talking through like how she resolves conflict in the classroom. And when someone has a hurt, uh, one classmate has hurt another classmate, like the person who has caused harm, how you deal with them. And I think just really 
learning about and engaging because abolition, I used to think I was an abolitionist because I was like, abolition, you just like get rid of everything and then like everything falls apart. But understanding that abolition is a process and then really thinking about like what makes people feel safe. Um, and it, the answer is not the police. Like if we, no matter what the harm is caused, whether it's like, um, physical or emotional or whatever is going on, whether it's domestic abuse or sexual abuse or anything, um, when the cops get involved, generally the trauma is greater, the um, harm is greater, the overall harm, and generally people aren't resolved. And like, when you think about throwing people into prison when they've done something wrong, generally those people come out worse, uh, you know, on, on, uh, that is generally the way that things go and that there are no restorative measures in place to make sure that that process for people is one where they, you know, we're, we're talking about discarding people rather than actually trying to get to the root of the problem and understand why, why did this person cause harm and has, has someone caused harm to them and how do we resolve that and stop the cycle rather than just using prison and using the criminal justice system as a catch-all for all these other weaknesses and failures that our systems have. Um, and instead of addressing education and addressing homelessness and addressing all of these other issues that cause people to commit crimes either to survive or whatever it is, we just put them all in jail and then people don't get better and we don't see our society get better. And I think that um, thinking about abolition as a process of, you know, defunding the police, like gradually moving resources away from the police, away from the prison industrial complex and into education and into all of these other systems. And then just continuing to imagine and work towards a future where police are no longer necessary. I think that having that as our North star is likely to, um, bring up questions that are ultimately going, like bring up questions that make us seek answers that are ultimately going to be better for our world and better for our society. Um, if we're asking questions in the interest of being like, how do we make these punitive measures no longer necessary? And what do we need in order to get to that future? We're gonna be, I believe that we're gonna be constantly moving in an upward trajectory. Okay, so. Uh, what are the things that this country needs to heal from? So much. <laughs> um, goodness, I, you know, you look at where we are right now and the fact that and we can say so much in relation to COVID, but what is our focus right now? It's like we're prioritizing money and profit over lives. The, the rush is to open up the economy, not worried about, you know, it's like lives are just kind of, you know, whatever. A few may die, you know, this percentage may die, but um, it, it's healing from cognitive dissonance, right? And so what you think and, and what you do, there is definitely a disconnect. Uh, and so we need to connect the two. So we have the language technically, right? As far as you think about the constitution, here's what we're supposed to do and here's what we were founded on, but we, we're not actually doing it. There's no actual action. Um, and so we, we say we believe all men are created equal, but we're not 
acting according to that. And there's, so I think that there's, there's that bit that that's there, but I also feel like we need to heal from, and I know this is going to sound really basic, but selfishness, right? You know, you, I won't wear a mask because of my rights, my freedoms, you know, I, I think back to the history of this country. I want your land. So we'll kill you, you know, I, you know, we're going to take your culture. We're going to, um, you know, so it's like, there's a, this overvaluing of self and belittling others in the process and, and denying people their humanity. And I think that's a, a big thing that we, we need to, this country needs to heal. Uh, oppression of other people, a genocide, you know. Oh, America. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, tell you something that we need to heal from, from the point of view of the education system. Mm. And, 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 and I think that this nation and more broadly all of the, the education paradigm right now needs to heal from what is white empiricism. So what white empiricism is, is that, um, is the fact that our current academic model is, was solidified over the ideas of the enlightenment, which was tremendously problematic for racial issues and also elitist, right? Mm -hmm. So if like, I think that like, this is not what academia was supposed to be like in, in, in the original conception of academia. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because from my, from my experience in, in being in, 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 the, in a predominantly white institution and being in a, um, in a university that has now become a corporation instead of just um, the four walls of, of that like guard knowledge, um, it's become a map here. Uh, and, and individuals who know how to play the game and they, they have the right connections and know how to publish fast can get just as far or even farther than people who have novel ideas. And we, we, need, to, we need to understand that there is an immense barrier for people of color to take on, um, to take on these roles in the academic setting. Um, one example that comes to mind is the, the recent denial of tenure to Professor Garcia Lorge at Harvard. Um, Garcia Lorge is um, an excellent and visionary academic in ethnical studies, uh, particularly in the um, Afro-Latinic Afro studies and the African diaspora as it pertains to Latin America. And Lorge's leave really uh, meant a lot of things for Harvard. It meant that like um, graduate ethnic studies um, became non-existent, even though Harvard had like pledged to, to have an ethnics program, an ethnic studies program in the near future. And so what is worse than this is that um, academic fields actually do see themselves benefited from a diverse uh, uh, set of people that bring forward ideas. Uh, it's been shown, I think Stanford came up with a study recently where, where they show that uh, groups of physicists who have a more diverse pool of, of scientists actually publish more novel work, and yet the work is underscored. Mm. Uh, why? Because we have this notion that academic thinking and that uh, scientific um, progress can only take part in certain skins, and that's, that's, that's wrong. So I think that one of the biggest things that we need to acknowledge is that our academic setting and, and schooling is based on this idea of white empiricism, like that, that there's a certain profile that people have 
that um, that allows them to move forward in, in, in education. And so we need to cultivate um, um, more uh, cultivate spaces where people of color can participate so that later on we have more uh, leadership of color in academia. And we also need to understand that um, people of color being in academia, um, me, uh, people of color who are in academia, sorry, have different needs as it comes, uh, as it pertains to mental health and, and, and just health in general, because we are overworked. We have to do the research. And then in the afternoon, we have to do activism. And then at night, we have to have different difficult conversations with our peers. And so it's just a lot. Um, so I think that from my point of view, that's one thing that we need to heal from, white empiricism. Mm. Needs to be in the way we see ourselves. Mm. Um, I think our nation is in desperate need of a mirror mm. and in desperate need of willingness to see herself as she is. I think a lot of our struggle in this area, and it shows up in every place in academia, um, in media, in every place, is because America has believed its own narrative of its own goodness and its own um, its own heroics. And so, like, it's re it becomes really difficult to correct an issue we won't look at or correct an issue that, and when I say we, I mean as a nation, the minorities of this country have been very clear for a very long time. <laughs> um, um, but when you refuse to see it or refuse to see it as something that needs work, when we are so set on seeing it as a problem solved in 1955 um, or in 1968, when we are convinced that that we're better and that we're, you know, the best we can be, you know, we need to see ourselves, be willing to really look um, and really correct the way we see ourselves, I think is where our healing starts. I really agree with what Kayla said. And um, it was just gonna, I was gonna say, and when I say whiteness, of course, I mean it institutionally and systemically, um, and not just in terms of bodies, right? But like, I think that when that gets healed um, and that being like the violence that our country was built on, the violence that the U.S. has um, perpetuated since it, you know, like stole this land, <laughs> um, that once that gets healed, you know, so much of the healing doesn't need to be on the backs of uh, BIPOC and, and it doesn't need to be, happening um you know over and over again and people don't need to be healing from this trauma on such a massive scale when these systems heal themselves rather than just the casualties of this system healing from um the harm that's done by them um so what does a society that inhabits people who are mentally well and emotionally healed look like I feel like there'd be um, maybe more than what it looks like, what it would feel like, um, freedom, um, you know, not having to prioritize needs. Do I pay the grocery bills or do I pay the light bill? Um, 
um, you know, freedom to communicate. You know, think about people who don't necessarily have that freedom to communicate with parents, for example. Um, and um, people treating each other, I guess maybe this is more with the look, um, treating each other as, as you would your family, as family members. So being mindful of others. Uh, you think about as, as something as simple as uh, not throwing garbage out on the street shows that you care for your community, you care for others, you're, you're wearing your mask. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I guess I'd look at it on, on, on two sides as far as the way that it would feel is that there'd be a, there'd a, bit, a bit of levity in society, but then there's also the fact that we are going to be more um, mindful, more thoughtful um, when we interact with others. You know, it's not a reactive space, but we're, we're living with intention, with consideration of the next person. We've, we've thought through what we're, we're dealing with right now. We've made the best decision, so deliberate um empathy so no longer um that no that eye for an eye kind of mentality mm. so and this is the last question um what are some programs or nonprofits that you've seen that you've been involved with that are contributing um positively to this goal in chicago i i, I mean they're so uh, many good orgs and those are the only ones that I can speak to and even then I really can't speak to all of them but mm -hmm. I know Brave Space Alliance does incredible things Asada's Daughters um, and I mean then they all serve different functions as well my block my hood my city um, there are like a lot of organizations that are just like even in that circuit that you can go to to, and I feel like from there, build your own network based on where you feel like your issues are that you want, the things that you want to address and what you want to invest in. Thank you. Uh, Rodrigo, you told me you work with a nonprofit that helps women of color in STEM. Could you talk a little bit more about that? In what is called the Women of Color Project, um, which you can find at thewocproject.org. And we are an organization that uh, aims to address the issues that the issues that that women of color face in um, getting into graduate school and having a successful life in academia. Um, again, as as you guys pointed out, is that often uh, women are told like you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't like shoot this high, et cetera, et cetera. And we're trying to kind of um, uh, mitigate the effect that those aggressions can have in, in, in brilliant, very capable um, women of color. And um, so in, in our programming, we have, um, we, what we do is every year we have a conference in October for uh, women of color who are interested in pursuing graduate school in STEM fields. And right now we're concentrating on STEM fields because the program is young and we, we want to make sure that we're addressing uh, the issues in, in STEM first and then we, let's see where we can grow. Um, so what we do is we have a conference in October and we last year we invited 20 um, uh, women to, 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 to have a three-day workshop here at Harvard. This year we're inviting uh, 50 people and we're opening it to the to the to the to the community as a whole in, a, in a, by by a Zoom webinars, um, and everybody can take it. Um, everybody can benefit from it. And we have 
uh, workshop specifically talking about mental health and how to uh, deal with the mental struggles that will arise by, from being in a predominantly white institution. Um, so um, if there's any, any, anybody who's, um, who's interested in applying, uh, please visit the website is the wocproject.org. Um, um, and there you can find the application and you can also nominate people you know of anybody who would benefit. Um, so that's all the questions that I have everyone can give ourselves a hand. Thank you all of you for being so vulnerable and honest. Um, I appreciate you so much and I hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your evening and take care of yourselves. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This is awesome. Thank you. That's Thank exciting. You. So good to meet you. Thank you.